While the first half of his life was spent amassing unprecedented personal wealth, Rockefeller spent the last 40 years of his life creating foundations that had a major effect on religious missions, medicine, education, scientific research, including the University of Chicago, Rockefeller University, and the Central Philippine University in the Philippines. Rockefeller was a devout Baptist who adhered to total abstinence from alcohol throughout his life. He was a faithful church attendee. He taught Sunday school. He served as an occasional church janitor. Yet it should be noted that the life of philanthropy that he led on the second half of his existence wasn't easy either. According to an organization known as Philanthropy Roundtable, and I quote from them, by the 1890s, when he was in his 50, it seemed as if half of America wanted to incarcerate John D. Rockefeller on antitrust grounds, while the other half wanted a loan from him. His chief, his chief philanthropic advisor, Frederick Cates, left this interesting vignette. Again, I quote from him. Mr. Rockefeller was constantly hunted, stalked, and hounded almost like a wild animal. Neither in the privacy of his home, nor at his table, nor in the aisles of his church, nor during his business hours, nor anywhere else was Mr. Rockefeller secure from insistent appeal for money. This was the worst part of what I read. Clergymen, incidentally, according to Rockefeller, were easily the worst offenders. By the seventh hole at golf, Rockefeller once claimed, they would invariably break down and spring a charitable proposal on me. And I mention these conflicting worlds of John D. Rockefeller because I, I think on one hand, uh, we all need, would recognize that if God has given you that much wealth, that you certainly have a stewardship and a responsibility to be generous. But I also mention it because I don't know that most of us have any idea what it means to be burdened with that type of responsibility. It's not easy. It would be simple for many of us who don't have much compared to others in American culture to sit around and think, well, if I had that much money, I'd be particularly generous. And yet that is not necessarily the case with our lives where we are. First of all, compared to most of the world, we are by far the wealthiest in the world. And then secondly, most of us, if we were honest, don't give as much as we could with the little that we have. I know that's true for Carolyn and I. I can confess that to you, that we enjoy the life God's given us. But if we really dug down deep, if we really were motivated, we could live lots cheaper. We could live lots more sacrificially. And that's something that I have to face when I look at this passage of Scripture. Within God's kingdom, the issue of fairness is very real. I know because I spent a better part of my life in the Republican South. That, and forgive me if you're a Republican here today, and this is going to kind of put you on your edge, Scott. But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, there is, a, there is a, a visceral sort of reaction when economic conservatives hear the issue of fairness brought up by pastors. And this is what I would say today as we read our scriptures and that is, while we never get to say, this person has been given more than me and that's not fair, God certainly has the right to say, I've given you a lot and you're going to give to them because that's fair. 
Fairness is an issue in the scripture. The Bible talks of it, which means God will distribute his gifts to whom he pleases. But there's no question that if you've been given an abundance of blessings, whether it be talent or self-discipline or opportunity or the benefits of all of that, you're to be abundantly generous with everyone. The last three verses of today's passage read during the worship time said this. 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, over the next chapter or two in our study in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul will be talking about financial sacrifice within the body of Christ. We, I want to be clear, are not preaching about this subject because of Prism's financial need, which is almost always a a reality. Uh, But because we have providentially come to this part of the scripture that we charted out to study throughout the whole of the year, which is important for you to know about our church, and that is We really don't have an agenda other than to help us all discover Jesus and to look at the scriptures which give life and to say, what does this mean for us? We could adapt our messages to the current events of the day if we so chose to, but what we would prefer to do would be to say, the most important thing for you, for me, for anybody else is to know and discover afresh and anew the glory and grace of God in your life and in mine That, friends, will transform our world. That said, we are going to study this next couple of chapters with great intensity because as believers, we are responsible to submit to all of God's word, not just that which comes easily to us. It shouldn't surprise any of us to find that there are Christians who are theologically precise, concerned about moral issues, not given to drunkenness, perhaps militant in their spiritual disciplines to the point of envying them. And yet they would be extraordinarily stingy with their giving. And this is no small thing. Jesus said the following about money and his followers. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the challenge for all of us, particularly those of us in this affluent culture of ours. It is so easy to serve money, even if you don't think you have a lot of it. It's so easy to hinge your happiness on whether or not you have the means to buy or procure or secure something. Instead of saying, I'm going to find my hope, as we sang this morning, in nothing less than Christ and his righteousness. Jesus' brother James, who we mentioned last week, was one of the first martyrs of the church, and he's also somebody we're going to study extensively in 2016, said this to rich people. James 5, verses 1 through 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Friends, I don't know how you can study North American history, particularly that of the late 19th, early 20th century, and not hear James 5 yelled out to a series of entrepreneurs, so to speak, robber barons, who were filthy wealthy and were making that wealth on the backs of people who were living on slave wages. This is not something that was just the case in the first century when landlords and slaveholders drove people to almost their death in order to make themselves wealthy. This is a real part of our culture. It's been a part of American culture. It's still a part of American culture. This sense of entitlement, while Paul is certainly talking about giving money in this passage in 2 Corinthians, the application for us is much broader and includes everything from our time, which is more of a sacrifice for some of us, and anything else the Lord has given us to steward. It is antithetical It is impossible to converge Christian thinking and the saying, quote, this is my stuff. This is my money. It just isn't. You want to look Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, the, the admonition, the command, the clarity from Scripture is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And if you and I get to steward some of that on his behalf, then we're fortunate enough to do so. Today I want to take a look at three things of giving that that Paul has to say to the Corinthians about giving. The first is this. Giving is our act of grace. All right? Paul equates the efforts we make in faith and speech and knowledge and love. All of these things are good and necessary. And then he adds our willingness to sacrifice financially into the mix. Listen to what he says here in verse 7. But as you excel in everything... In faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul puts our giving right up there with the other things that we might consider important components of Christian living. It is not enough for somebody who is an impressive risk taker of faith or spiritually gifted as the Corinthians were, if you'll read 1 Corinthians, you'll see they were powerfully gifted in the gifts of the Spirit. They also had people within their church who were theologically or biblically more advanced than their peers. But none of this mattered to Paul if the act of grace that is giving financially wasn't a part of their life. It's very similar to what you hear read at weddings often from 1 Corinthians 13 about love. You know, what, what good are all of these things if you don't have love? Well, Paul is effectively reiterating the same thought with regards to the love we express to one another in our generosity, in this act of grace that is giving financially. God is calling us to include our act of giving in broader categories like helping the needy and fighting injustice and professing our faith publicly and the like. He's saying giving is as important as all of those things. And because of this, the wealthy are going to feel this more painfully because they can. Moderate to poor people 
should be careful not to be proud of their generosity, presuming they'd get it if they've had it. And most of us have never known that temptation. At least we think we haven't. But if we take a deep, dark look into our soul, which the gospel gives us the freedom to do, we're right with Christ because of what Jesus has done. We're right with the Father. We're at rest. We can freely go, okay, God, is there something in me that is clinging to my stuff? Because I think that's going to provide for life for me. Paul tells a young church planter, Timothy, this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And this is the part of this whole admonition to experience and to be to others an act of grace. And I I want you to hear it in Paul's admonition to Timothy, which effectively to pastors like myself is to say, this is my responsibility to pass along this nugget of information. In this last half of this passage, he says, storing up a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, this is the real risk associated with hoarding our wealth. We're missing out on something that's even more meaningful at a deeper level. Paul tells Timothy that the rich are to be continuously in a posture of generosity because doing so causes us to look to Jesus for our daily sustenance and not our stuff. So they take hold of that which is really life. And so the passage here clearly says that giving is an act of grace. It's our act of grace. It's a means to transmit that grace to others. It's also a means for us to experience grace in demonstrably exciting ways, which we'll get to in just a minute. Giving also evidences our genuineness. This is the second thing I'd share with you today. Giving's an act of grace on our part, But according to the scriptures, this is a means by which people can actually sense the love we have for them. Paul wrote in verses 8 and 9, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know how the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We cannot force genuineness this is not something you can pretend. I have this past weekend, as Tammy mentioned, been at my niece's wedding. Got to see all five of my sisters. One of my sisters, Mary Lynn, is here today from Texas. Very happy she's here. I expected a woo from Bonnie because of Texas. Um, <laughs> but it, but, but I, I enjoyed that wedding. Now, I want to be careful because some of you, I'm going to do your wedding, and you're going to remember this, and this is going to be hard for you to forget. There are a lot of weddings that I'm not particularly fond of being at because I don't know a soul. And so I'll go to the wedding and I'll find myself saying, oh boy, you know, uh, I don't necessarily find this to be the most enjoyable part of my day. And so it takes real work for me to, to, to actually be in the moment and care that these people need me there, want me there, that it's important to them even if it's not important to me. And for me, 
It is an act of genuine love. It doesn't mean it isn't easy. It just means that it is a moment where my genuineness of doing what I do for a living is tested. It was easy for me this past weekend. As a matter of fact, I didn't want the celebration to end because I was with family and friends, and it was easy. There are days where the, the depth of my love is tested by the challenge associated with being somewhere that is difficult. While Paul gives us this admonition to give generously, he isn't saying it's a command because he's pleading with us to consider how our giving is perceived by others and that they are able to see and benefit from and sense the love that we have for them based on our generosity. And this was evident in the Macedonian giving that we talked about last week in the early part of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. They were a poor group of folks that amassed an amazing offering. They couldn't afford to give to this offering for the church, but they were radical in their giving. Paul wrote to the Romans this in Romans 12, 9 through 13, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. We see in this passage that once again the sacrifice of Jesus is our example. He was in heaven enjoying as would be his right as God and through whom all things were made the creator to enjoy the privilege of being worshipped and catered to by the angels. Yet his love for us was demonstrated in this. He left his throne in heaven. He sacrificed great wealth and actually embraced the deepest of pain so that we could become eternally wealthy. Jesus serves as our example. Giving to others is the test of whether our love for them is genuine. I was at a meeting of church planters, and uh, this was a couple of years ago, and I was having really great lunch, and it was free on the particular church planting association that I was uh, visiting with, and so always love a free lunch. And so I'm sitting with these guys, really having great conversation, kind of commiserating and working with guys that are my peers. And in the middle of this really amazing conversation with a dozen or so of my contemporaries, I get a phone call from my daughter. Now, I got to tell you right away, um, my daughter and my son and my wife, they cut into any conversation. So if I got my phone on me and it rings, I, you know, I don't hope nothing really tragic's going on in your life, but we're going to stop for a second. I'm going to take that call. Well, my daughter calls and she says, I've had an accident. I'm on the highway. And so I get up from the table and I leave without even like saying goodbye to everybody because that's what dads do. If you really love and care, if you genuinely find somebody's well-being a greater concern than your own comfort or your own sort of enjoyment of whatever it is you're doing, you enjoy more being able to come to the aid of people that you love. It was not work for me to get up from the free lunch with friends to go rescue my daughter. It was actually what I live for. It is the greatest part of my life. I don't like her getting in spots, but I love that she would call me. 
It's a, it's a joy. And it's incredible for us to think that this is the root of our capacity to be to others is that Jesus did the exact same thing. While it was not cheap and not easy for him to atone for our sins, he did not do so begrudgingly. He dropped everything and came after you and me. Our giving evidences our genuineness. Our giving is an act of grace. And finally, our giving benefits the generous. Listen to the word from verses 10 through 12. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is an acceptable it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person he does not have. Oh, not according to what he does not have. This is just an echoing of what we've said so far, which is the readiness comes by virtue of a genuine love that we have for others. And this is the part of the scriptures, unfortunately, that shameful television evangelists and unscrupulous ministers will try to use to promise you the benefits that uh, benefits to giving that scripture does not give us Uh, a quick historical side note and that is you know the the essence of the protestant reformation was caught in an event or a series of events related to this very subject protestants in the 16th century decided that they'd had enough of roman catholic authority and one of the things that stirred this pot was the idea that there was a monk a Franciscan friar named Johann Tetzel, who was soliciting contributions to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome throughout Europe, he was going, and he was saying that in exchange for your contribution, uh, I can get one of your relatives out of purgatory. That helps the fundraising campaign, I just want you to know. It, It tends to make people think, well, if there's something in this for me, then I will give. It wasn't true. And so, hence, it played just one of the reasons that Protestant reformers said enough already. He was noted or, or rumored to have offered this slogan at the moment of his pitch for funds. Tetzel would say, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Well, it's in this context that I have to tell you there's, there is nothing wrong with the idea that our giving does benefit us because the scriptures even say as much. King Solomon, the richest monarch of his time, the 10th century BC, knew something of this in his later years. He said in Proverbs 22.9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. You see, there's nothing impure in a motive to give to others because there is a benefit to you. And it's especially true because Scripture makes it clear that there's an inherent joy associated with giving to others. Jesus spoke of another level of benefit, namely a spiritual reward, both now and eternally, which I believe is a joy related to a life lived for his benefit and glory instead of our own. But Jesus says this to his disciples in Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. 
And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Did you hear that? His disposition to the ungrateful and the evil is still kindness. So how much more should we be generous to those who are needy? You know, in 1937, at age 98, John D. Rockefeller passed away. He would say in his latter years, quote, long ago I lost the joy in living. The only joy I have is in my giving. Historians estimate that he gave away $550 million, which is more than any other American beforehand, and is the modern equivalent of close to $100 billion. Why did he do this? Because Rockefeller, according to relatives in history, had come to the biblical conclusion that money couldn't satisfy. He said, if your only goal is to become rich, you will never achieve it. There's never enough money. And he discovered what Jesus said. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, the words are recorded, and all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. This is the real joy of getting to talk about giving and money in the church. It, it isn't because we want to avoid difficult subjects of the day or because we love just rattling your cage about money so that somehow or another we can make a living doing this vo vocational ministry thing. What you have in your pocket, what you have in your bank account is something that can produce immense joy in your life if you will cut loose of it and allow it to pour into the lives of others. See, you're just robbing yourself of joy in the presence of God, both immediately and in the future. And pastorally, it would be irresponsible for me to not actually echo the words that Paul has shared with the Corinthians and with his disciple Timothy and others to say, you know, he wants us, God wants us to know him. And on, the only thing that often keeps people of great means, and that's all of us, from really experiencing him is our clinging to those things that would keep us from that joy. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the, the monkey who got his hand caught in the bottle, but they did this one particular experiment where uh, uh, they put a rattle inside a bottle and the monkey could get its hand inside the bottle and it would grab the rattle, but then it couldn't get its hand out of the big jar because the rattle was in the hand of the animal. And it wasn't until he actually let go of the thing that he was able to get his hand free. And this is really analogous to where many of us are about everything we steward. We think that we're going to be happy so we don't let go of it, but really the only thing keeping us from ultimate freedom is just releasing that to God and trusting him that there's greater joy in giving than in receiving. Let us pray to that end this morning, shall we?
Our dear Father, we are grateful that you love us. We're grateful that you're patient with us. We're grateful that your word has given us direction about how you'd like us to experience you. And one of those means is by our being kind and generous to others. We have the privilege of being the means by which your grace is dispensed to others. We have the privilege of showing genuine love to one another through our giving and our sacrifice. We also, though, have the, the joy of experiencing um, a supernatural excitement and thrill to know that we've pleased you by virtue of being the conduit of that kindness. So we pray that you would stir us, not by guilt or by anything other than the fact that you have been so good to us. And as we take communion this morning, would we be people who would reflect on the sacrifice that you've made, Jesus, who ultimately, the owner of all things, gave it all so that we might be rich. For it's in your son's name we pray.